You're listening to Kalam Institute's podcast series, Sira, Life of the Prophet, by Sheikh Abdul Nasir Jangda. Visit us on the web at kalaminstitute.org or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash kalaminstitute. Bismillahi walhamdulillah wa salatu wa salamu ala rasulillah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'een. Inshallah, continuing with our series on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, Asiratu Nabawiyah. So, inshallah, continuing with our series on the life of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, Asiratu Nabawiyah. Um, in the previous session, we talked about, or rather, maybe over the last few sessions, we've talked about the kind of reaching of that fifth, almost sixth year of prophethood of Nubuwa, and how, you know, the Prophet ﷺ, the Muslims, and even the Quraysh were kind of at this crossroads where a lot of different options had been explored. The Prophet ﷺ had explored preaching and teaching the people of Mecca through various means. The Muslims themselves had explored a number of different options, and so much so as many of the Muslims leaving Mecca and moving out of Mecca, by now they had also experienced people like Hamza Umar ibn Khattab accepting Islam and therefore granting the Muslims a little bit more strength and confidence. The Quraysh had also explored a number of different options and different avenues in terms of whatever their intention or their purpose was. They had tried, um, you know, uh, making offers to the Prophet ﷺ, approaching Abu Talib directly. They tried you know, reasoning with the Prophet ﷺ, they tried bribing the Prophet ﷺ, they even tried torturing the Muslims and even trying to attack and personally harm the Prophet ﷺ. But again, it's, uh, it, nothing was obviously working. In the previous session then we talked about something very interesting. It's not mentioned very prominently within basic books of the seerah, but nevertheless it is something that is authentic and something that is mentioned in the classical text in regards to the life of the Prophet ﷺ. And that is that there was a, 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 a delegation from some of the Christian Arab tribes of, of the north that had come down and accepted Islam and gone back. And these were prominent people from their tribes and the Quraysh had received them. The Quraysh had met with them and wanted to show some hospitality to them and only for these people to eventually meet the Prophet accept Islam. And we even talked about Abu Jahl had a conversation with them where he insulted them. After all of this, he insulted them and sent them back with this bad taste in their mouth in regards to Abu Jahl and the Quraysh in Mecca. That not only have we found the truth and we accepted Islam, but on top of that, these people of Mecca, the leaders of Quraysh, they seem to be really terrible human beings. That they insulted us, they didn't show us any hospitality, and even the people within their midst who have believed and accepted Islam, these people are very brutal with them and, and torture them and oppress them and persecute them. So after all of this happened, Again, Abu Jahl and his cronies kind of went back to congregate, to gather, and to kind of regroup and figure out a strategy going forward. And the narration mentions that one of the resolutions that they came to was that 
Well, one of the things it mentions, um, Alama Zuhri, rahimahullah ta'ala, mentions this, and Imam al-Bayhaqi, Ibn Hisham, many, many different, Ibn Ishaq, many different scholars of the seerah relate this same narration. Alama Zuhri, rahimahullah ta'ala, mentions, ثُمَّ إِنَّ الْمُشْرِكِينَ إِشْتَدُّوا عَلَى الْمُسْلِمِينَ كَأَشَدِّ مَا كَانُوا That the mushrikeen, the disbelievers, the Quraysh, they basically resolved to become even more harsh and fierce in their opposition of Islam and in their oppression of the Muslims more than they had ever been up to this point. And we've talked about, we had a whole session and throughout all the sessions we've been kind of talking about how serious the persecution of these early Muslims was. So imagine if these people go back, heartless people like Abu Jahl and Abu Lahab basically resolve to become even more aggressive in their persecution. Just try to imagine what that exactly means, what that precludes. And they said, حَتَّى بَلَغَ الْمُسِمِينَ الْجُهْدَى and so the Muslims suffered more than they had ever suffered before. So things were really, really, things were really going south here in Mecca now. And then he talks about what Shama'at Quraysh fi Makriha and Yaqtulu Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam ala niyyatan. So, and they basically sat together in their kind of the, we've talked about it, kind of the, the high council of Mecca, when they would sit and they would meet in the haram at the Kaaba. They basically met there and very publicly, openly, this was not a couple of people kind of conspiring in a dark little corner in the middle of the night, saying we need to, you know, we need to make, you know, some type of a, 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 a covert, you know, assassination attempt. You know, and make it look like an accident. This wasn't a case like this. They publicly sitting, sitting in the public forum, in broad daylight, loudly with their voices raised, basically said, the only solution to this matter is to kill Muhammad wasallam. That's it. We've been through everything else. We've explored everything else. And nothing else will work. We have to kill the Prophet wasallam. فَلَمَّا رَآ أَبُو طَالِبَ عَمَلَ الْقَوْمِ جَمَعَ بَنِي عَبْدِ الْمُطَّلِبِ وَأَمَرَهُمْ أَنْ يُدْخِلُوا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم شِعْبَهُمْ وَأَمَرَهُمْ أَنْ يَمْنَعُوهُ مِمَّنْ أَرَادُوا قَتْلَهُ فَاجْتَمَعُوا عَلَى ذَلِكَ مُسْلِمُهُمْ وَكَافِرُهُمْ فَمَنَعَهُمْ مَنْ فَعَلَهُ حَمِيَّةً فَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ فَعَلَهُ حَمِيَّةً وَمِنْهُمْ مَنْ فَعَلَهُ إِيمَانًا وَيَقِينًا Then he goes on to explain that Abu Talib gathered together Banu Hashim. Abu Talib gathered together uh, Banu Abdul Muttalib, even more specific than Hashim. He gathered together Bani Abdul Muttalib. Basically, Banu Abdul Muttalib are the children and the grandchildren and even the great grandchildren of Abdul Muttalib, the grandfather of the Prophet. So he gathered basically the more immediate family of the Prophet. All the brothers, all the sisters, all the uncles, all the aunts, and the cousins, and the nephews, and nieces. He gathered this circle of the family. So he didn't even reach out to the broader branch of the family. Banu Hashim, he didn't reach out to Quraysh, obviously not. But he reached out to the more immediate, you know, family tree, if you will. And he reached out to them and he basically said, they're going to kill Muhammad. They're going to kill him. And we have to take some drastic measures now. If we don't want to see just full-scale warfare in Mecca, we do not want to see our family 
and our forefathers and Abdul Muttalib disrespected in this way. And we all love Muhammad. Some of you might disagree with him, might not believe in what he has to say. But at the end of the day, being more immediate family, all of you have love for him. And if you don't want to see him dead, killed, murdered, assassinated, then we have to take some drastic measures. We have to take Muhammad, we have to surround him and protect him, and we have to go into the Shi'ab of Abi Talib. The Shi'ab of Abi Talib, this more immediate family of the Prophet ﷺ, this was a section of the valley right, right outside of Mecca that was owned by the family, that was basically, basically belonged to Abdul Muttalib. So this little valley, this stretch of land belonged to Abdul Muttalib. It was a little bit right outside, it was almost like, think of it in our terms here, like a ranch outside of the city. So you drive out a little bit outside of the city, and then there's a ranch over there. There's some long, big, extended, you know, 30, 40 acres of property out there. So like many times, a big family will kind of own a ranch like, yeah, our family owns a ranch outside of, outside of town. Similarly, Abdul Muttalib owned this stretch of land, a valley, outside of Mecca. And Abu Talib is saying, we have to take Muhammad wasallam and we have to basically move him over there, and we'll have to go over there to protect him and kind of make a stand and show some solidarity, but that's the only way to keep him alive. As the only way to avert this, this, this just completely um, spiraling down into a complete total tragedy. That's the only course of action at this point. And The narration says that Banu Abdul Muttalib basically were, they agreed to this. They all realized that this is the only course of action here. Only reasonable course of action. Muslimuhum wa kafirum. And this is where it's interesting. Both those amongst the more immediate family of the Prophet ﷺ who had believed, but even those who didn't, had not believed, those who were, had not accepted Islam, they were not Muslim. Those, those family members also agreed to this and were willing to put their support behind this course of action as well. Some of them did it to simply protect the Prophet ﷺ or to protect the family, honor and the dignity. And then there were others who did this out of iman. They did this out of faith and belief in the prophethood of Muhammad Rasulullah The narration goes on to mention that once Quraysh realized that the family had kind of rallied around the Prophet ﷺ and they were going to protect him. They had kind of, so right here, very first on, we should, I should point this out. One of the lessons here of this particular session, or this event from the life of the Prophet ﷺ, is that a lot of times we do know the version of the story, and it's actually a part of the story, which we'll talk about next. But we do know that the Quraysh put this agreement into place, socially boycotting, ostracizing, completely cutting off the Muslims and the, those who were willing to protect the Prophet ﷺ from the family of the Prophet ﷺ, even if they were not Muslim. So anyone who either believed, followed, or even supported, protected the Prophet ﷺ, the Quraysh decided to completely boycott those people. We do know that. But what we have to understand is that we have to see the wisdom of Abu Talib here. Abu Talib was the one who actually, he did not advocate, he did not want to take a boycott, that's not the case. But Abu Talib was the one to basically take the Prophet ﷺ, take him out a little bit outside of Mecca, kind of stash him away over there in this valley, in this separated place, and to take some of the followers and family and supporters and basically go there and say, we're kind of backing away from the action a little bit, we're going to go here to keep everyone safe and sound. 
So this step was initiated by Abu Talib. And, and see, this is why it's very interesting. You see the wisdom in this. You see the wisdom in this. Because the Quraysh publicly are gathering in broad daylight, publicly advocating with no regard now towards Abu Talib and the family of the Prophet ﷺ even. I mean, of course, they were willing to harm the Prophet ﷺ before this. But at the very least, they had this respect for Abu Talib. They had a respect for Abdul Muttalib, the great leader of the Arabs and the Quraysh in Mecca. But they've gotten to the point where they don't even care about these things. They're publicly talking about killing the Prophet ﷺ in broad daylight. Abu Talib recognizing this moment and saying things could go very bad right now. And so Abu Talib basically retreats. And once the Quraysh are able to see that we underestimated Abu Talib and Banu Abdul Muttalib's loyalty to the Prophet ﷺ, we underestimated it. Now, the, the Quraysh basically, in Abu Jahl and the rest of the Quraysh, they basically gather together and they say that looks like they're fully willing to protect him and support him. So they said, we can't go there and just have a massacre and a bloodbath, you know, kill all these people amongst whom are some of the leadership of Quraysh, women and children and everyone, we can't do that. So then what do we do? They said, they basically said that, fine, we will sit here and we will basically put an agreement together. We will create a pact, an agreement that we will all agree to. We will all be party to this agreement that none of us will talk to them, none of us will sit with them, none of us will do business with them, none of us will go into their homes, and even some of the more, de some of the more details of the agreement were that none of our family members will marry any of their family members, that we will completely socially cut them off and boycott them until and unless they hand over the Prophet ﷺ for, for execution. يُسَلِّمُوا رَسُولَ اللَّهِ They have to hand him over to us for execution. If they're not willing to do that, we're not interested in any other terms of agreement. If they're not willing to do that, then as far as we're concerned, they're dead to us. And they said, this is what, we're gonna smoke them out. This is what we're gonna do with them. And so, this was the agreement that they had. وَكَتَبُوا فِي مَكْرِهِمْ صَحِيفَةً وَعُهُودًا وَمَوَاثِيقٍ لَا يَقْبَلُوا مِن بَنِي هَاشِمْ أَبَدًا صُلْحًا وَلَا تَأْخُذُهُمْ بِهِ رَأْفَةٌ حَتَّى يُسْلِمُهُ لِلْقَتْلِ And they basically even wrote down a physical written agreement. And in that agreement was written the fact that they will not negotiate these terms. These are non-negotiable terms. There is no agreement, there is no negotiation, there is no middle ground a meeting of the minds in the middle that we can come to. That's it, we're done. It's this or that. And that's it. وَلَا تَأْخُذُهُمْ بِرَأْفَةٌ And none of us will show any compassion and mercy towards them. Until and unless they hand him over for execution. That's it. That's the only way out of this situation. The narration goes on to tell us that Banu Hashim or Banu Abdul Muttalib more precisely ended up spending three years in the valley under this social boycott. And the narrations even mention 
The narrations even mention that the conditions within that valley became so severe and so trying and testing that the narration actually mentions about that the narrations mentioned that eventually the suffering of these people boycotted because they had no means to earn any type of income or money or even regularly receive supplies of food that eventually their situation became so dire that you could hear the babies you could hear the children screaming and crying from the pangs of hunger some of the narrations which are, are, are not complete are not mentioned in detail in the more authentic classical resources so again, there's some speculation about some of the more added details, explicit details, maybe being something that was added um, from the angle of storytelling. Wallahu ta'ala alamu bisawab. However, at the same time, you can understand from what is being said here, even in the more classical authentic narrations, that you could hear babies, you could hear children screaming and crying. Even outside of that valley, the people who lived on the edge of the, the outskirts of the city of Mecca used to relate hearing women and children crying and screaming. They used to hear people mourning their dead from this valley. That many different, that many of these children that were there died due to starvation. Many different individuals died due to sickness. And it was a very difficult time. And this lasted for three years. And eventually from hearing these screams and these cries, from seeing the dead being buried, from seeing the conditions and hearing the horror stories inside of this valley and what was going on with these people, the general sentiment in Mecca became one that was very sympathetic towards the Muslims and the supporters of Muhammad ﷺ in the valley of Abu Talib. That they, the general sentiment on the street in Mecca, the more common folk, were not okay with what was going on. They did not like what was going on. They could no longer tolerate what was going on. And they began to talk about this in their homes, in their personal gatherings, on the street, you know, water cooler talk. They started to talk amongst themselves about how this, this wretched, vile agreement was the cause of people that they've known their whole lives, people that they even cared for and loved, going through such inhumane treatment, going through such serious suffering that the general sentiment in Mecca started to also kind of turn on the leadership of Quraysh and was very anti this social boycott. And on the other hand, at the same time the Muslims and particularly Abu Talib, who was very concerned about the well-being and the protection of the Prophet ﷺ, was also lived three years of high alert. He lived three years on high alert. Because he knew the whole reason that he had taken this drastic step that apparently it seems, somebody with a very surface level analysis would say that was a huge misstep by him because it led, it basically facilitated and set up the social boycott. But Abu Talib was a man of foresight who understood his people and understood what was going on. And he knew people like Abu Jahl and Abu Lahab from personal interaction and dealing with them, that he could not put anything past these people. That he have, if he had left things the way that they were, there was nothing that would stop these people from creating a bloodbath inside of Mecca. 
And so Abu Talib had taken this step, but he also lived for these three years of boycott with all the stress and witnessing the suffering of his own grandchildren and these babies and these children and these women who were family members to him. And he was responsible for them. He was custodians. He was a custodian of these people, caretaker of these people. That he, in spite of all of this stress that he was dealing with, he was still on high alert because he knew that Quraysh had these uh, had the intention to publicly assassinate the Prophet ﷺ. And so the narrations talk about the fact that every night when the Prophet ﷺ would go to sleep, he would actually make the Prophet ﷺ sometimes switch sleeping places with himself, with other family members. So even out in the valley, if every family kind of had their own tent, every day he would make the Prophet ﷺ switch the Prophet ﷺ's tent. He says, today, me and my family will go stay in your tent and you and your family go stay in my tent. Let's switch apartments. Just to switch things up on them. And, so, and then tomorrow, alright, that cousin, come on, you come stay in Muhammad's tent and Muhammad and his family are gonna go stay in your tent. And he was continuing to switch this up every single day. Some narrations even mention that sometimes Abu Talib would be so nervous. Some of the narrations mention he would stay up all night long. Some of the narrations mentioned that he had actually fixed a rotation from the young men of that family, from the family of Abu Talib. He had fixed a rotation that somebody would be up all night long. They had rotations, they have different turns. Somebody would up, stay up all night long just guarding everything and guarding everyone. And particularly keeping an eye on the tent that the Prophet ﷺ was staying in. And some narrations mentioned that some nights Abu Talib would come to the Prophet ﷺ after he had already made him switch a tent with someone else, he would still come to him at that time, and then in the middle of the night, tell him to switch with somebody else. And every couple of hours, he would wake up the Prophet ﷺ and say, you gotta switch, you gotta switch, you gotta switch. He was so worried and so nervous about the protection of the Prophet ﷺ. And so this went on for a very, very long time. And the narrations basically mentioned that this went on for the three years. That for three years they dealt with these very, very difficult trying testing circumstances. One other thing that should be mentioned here, which really won't come as much of a surprise, but it's still mentioned explicitly in these narrations, that Abu Lahab, who was from the family, of the Prophet ﷺ, he was his uncle, his father's older brother, he had basically decided, when this whole deal went down, when all of this happened, Abu Lahab said, no, I'm not with Abu Talib, I'm not with the family, I'm not with all these people, and he went over to Quraysh and he said, I am with you. That when this all happened, the narration says, Ibn Ishaq mentions this, وَخَرَجَ أَبُوْ لَهَبْ مِنْ بَنِي هَاشِمْ فَظَاهَرَهُمْ وَخَرَجَ أَبُوْ لَهَبْ مِنْ بَنِي هَاشِمْ إِلَىٰ قُرَيْشْ فَظَاهَرَهُمْ And when this whole situation went down, Abu Lahab basically left Banu Hashim, Banu Abdul Muttalib, went over to the Quraysh and said, I am with you and I will help you all against them. This was how Abu Lahab basically fared. And the narration even mentions that he went to Hind bin Utbah bin Rabi'ah, who was the daughter of Utbah bin Rabi'ah, major opponent of uh, major opposition 
leader against Islam and against the Prophet ﷺ. She was the daughter of this man, um, Utbah bin Rabi'ah, and she herself was very um, strong in her opposition against Islam. She eventually married Abu Sufyan, and husband and wife were like this power couple that were both against Islam and the Prophet ﷺ. And she eventually would be the woman who would hire Wahshi to assassinate the uncle of the Prophet ﷺ, Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib, in the Battle of Uhud. And eventually, even much later on after that, at the time of Fatimaka, she would actually accept Islam. And we'll talk more about that when we reach that point in the seerah. That Abu Lahab went to Hind bin Utbah bin Rabi'ah and basically said that, have you seen me and where my allegiances lie? You see? I'm with Allah and Uzzah. I'm with the idols that we worship. And I've left my people. And I've left the people that oppose Allah and Al-Uzzah. She said, yes, yes, we have seen, we have noticed, and we have taken note of that fact, and we will not forget that you have joined with us. And it said that Abu Lahab, you know, I think I've talked about it here earlier, but I've, I've mentioned, I think I recall loosely, that I've talked about how Abu Lahab eventually died. And, and just to kind of recap, the way Abu Lahab eventually died, and you see some of the reason and the cause behind it, that this man had absolutely no loyalty, no decency, nothing. He, he literally sold out his own family and everyone because of his you know, uh, opposition, not only towards the Prophet but even because of his, his cowardice. He completely sold out even his own family members. So the narration mentions that eventually when Abu Lahab died, he went to, eventually when Abu Lahab died, he lost his mind. He became very senile towards the end of his life. And after losing his mind and going senile, it also talked about how he suffered a stroke and lost a lot of even physical bodily function. And it eventually talks about that even further after that, that his body began rotting away and he became very diseased um, and, and his body was completely rotting away and he was in this condition and in this shape before he passed away, before he died. And his family members, because he was senile, he had dementia, he was paralyzed, and his body was physically rotting away. He had blood and pus and boils covering his entire body, rashes covering his entire body. His own family basically kicked him out of the home. And they built like a little shed outside away from the home. And they locked him away there in that shed. And at that point in time, they hired a couple of servants to basically look after him and to protect him. And that's how they, they basically took care of him. And the narration goes on to mention that eventually one day, the servants that they had hired to look after him and come and clean him and feed him and kind of just make sure he's okay, didn't show up for a day or two. And the family said, the servants haven't showed up. One of us is going to have to go out there and deal with it. And they said, you go. Somebody said, no, you go. Why I got to go? You go. No, you go. And nobody went. Because nobody wanted to deal with him. This is his own immediate family. His own you know, wife and children. And nobody went to go check on him for a day or two. Eventually when the servants showed up to work again, and they went out there, and they checked on him, they said, he's dead. He must have died. And he's just lying there dead, he's rotting away. So maybe family members, children, sons, maybe you want to come and you know, offer his funeral rites and bury him properly. 
and they said, listen, nobody needs to know about this. Here's a little bit of cash, just take care of it. I'm not going to touch him. I wasn't willing to go and deal with his mess when he was alive. He's been rotting for two days. I'm not going to go near that. You go, just take care of it. Here's some extra cash. I even didn't mention that the, some of the narrations in the, in the seerah actually mentioned that people in Mecca relate, they talk about that when Abu Lahab had reached his old stage and his family had locked him away in this shed, that in the middle of the night when it would get dark and there was no light, no lamp inside of that shed, that because he, you know, he had dementia and he was senile and he was old, that he would get so scared and terrified in the middle of the night, he would literally scream and yell and cry all night long. He would scream and yell and cry all night long. And people used to relate walking by that shed, just terrified at hearing the shrill screams of Abu, Abu Lahab. That, can you imagine? This used to be Abu Lahab. Look at him now. It's like a wild dying animal. And, and eventually, so they give these servants this money. They say just dispose of him. And the servants take, you know, kind of wrap up his body and kind of take his body outside of Mecca. To bury him. But burying someone in Mecca was very difficult. Because of obviously the region and the soil and the land there. Very difficult, very hard. Digging a grave. So they kind of went out to the awali, the outside areas of Mecca. And they looked around. And they said, ain't nobody here. Nobody's going to see this. Nobody's going to know this. So they kind of found a little bit of a spot. You know where the mountains start and some little... They found a little corner that was kind of hidden away from public view, public eye. And they went there and they just dropped the body there. And the, the, the servants actually mentioned this, that before they had even gotten too far away, they saw and heard the wild dogs that used to roam around outside of Mecca come and start to tear away at his body. I was actually... You know, mentioning this, I was telling this story, and uh, one of the brothers, one of the students actually mentioned to me, who had lived in the Awali, who had lived, even in modern day, who had lived in, on the outskirts, outskirts of Mecca, and he said that those wild dogs are actually there till today. And he was talking about how when, when the people who live out there, they actually tell them to be very careful, especially not let their children out at night, and to be very careful because those wild dogs will attack people. So subhanAllah, those wild dogs came and ate Abu Lahab's body. And that's how Abu Lahab died. And you see part of the reason why Allah let him suffer such a fate, because of look at the quality of this individual. And the narration actually mentions that this might have been one of those moments when Abu Lahab started to lose his mind initially, that the narration mentions after he had abandoned even his own family members and joined with the Quraysh and said, I'm with y'all, I don't care about everybody else. That the narration mentions that Abu Lahab, would, they would find him, they would see him sometimes kind of sitting there, looking in his hand, and saying that, I, I, I don't see Muhammad giving me anything. I don't, I, don't, I don't see anything Muhammad's given me. And he would just keep repeating this, and he would look in his hands, and he would say, I don't see anything that Muhammad's given me. Why, why, why would I have to support Muhammad? I don't see anything Muhammad's given Nobody talking to him. He would be sitting by himself just saying this over and over again. Maybe he was riddled by the guilt of what he had done. Or this was just an adab and a punishment from Allah. But he would sit around literally saying like, why, why, why would I have to support Muhammad? I don't see Muhammad giving me anything. And this became the fate of Abu Lahab. And this was kind of the beginning of the end of Abu Lahab. So this is basically what went down. And there's a narration which mentions about how the Muslims, how the believers dealt with 
the conditions and the situation during these three years of this severe social boycott. And the narration actually mentions that one time, one of the uncles of Khadija radiallahu ta'ala anha, Khadija bint Khuwailid, the wife of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa radiallahu ta'ala anha, that one of her uncles, um, who was again a very prominent, respectable man uh, amongst the Quraysh, and because of not being immediate family, he was not necessarily included in the boycott. He wasn't out there with these people. But nevertheless, at the same time, he still empathized with the suffering and what was going on with these people. So the narration mentions that Hakim bin Hizam, who was the uncle of Khadija bin Khuwailid, he took some food. He took a lot of like grain and food and things like that. And he had a slave with him who was carrying a lot of this, him and the slave were both carrying, so you can imagine they were carrying like a couple of big sacks of food. And they were basically going towards the valley, the Shi'ab of Abi Talib, to deliver this to the, the people that were there, that were suffering there. And they ran into Abu Jahl. They ran into Abu Jahl. When Abu Jahl saw them, Abu Jahl was beside himself. Because he had already heard that a lot of the people in Mecca didn't like what was going on. And he was already upset about that. And he was already very, you know, he kind of knew, he had that on his mind. And so when he sees this man carrying food, he said, Are you trying to take food to those people? He said, I swear to God, you will not go to them, nor will you be able to take any food to them until I have humiliated you and ruined you in Mecca. Meaning, I will, I, will, I will take this food from you, I will embarrass you, I will beat you up, I will humiliate you in front of everyone, and then I'll send you to these people to go and live with them. Abu Jahl said this. And Hakim bin Hizam, this man, was trying to reason with Abu Jahl trying to tell him that, listen, no, um, this, you know, uh, uh, this belongs to Khadija. I'm not giving her anything. This belongs to her. I'm just returning back to her what belongs to her. He was trying to use that as trying to get by Abu Jahl. Abu Jahl was screaming and yelling and threatening him. A man came along by the name of Abu Bakhtari or Abu Bukhtari, who came along and he said, what's going on between the two of you? What's going on over here? Abu Jahl started screaming, يَحْمِلُ الطَّعَامِ إِلَىٰ بَنِي هَاشِمْ He's taking food to Banu Hashim, to Banu, Banu Abdul Muttalib. He's taking food to those traders, to those people. So Abu, Abu Al-Bukhtari says, طَعَامٌ كَانَ لِعَمَّتِهِ عِنْدَهُ or excuse me, I got the relationship wrong. Hakim bin Hizam was the nephew of Khadija radiallahu anha, not her uncle, he was nephew. Khadija radiallahu anha was the aunt. So he said, he's just taking food to his aunt. Like he's taking food that belongs to his aunt, to his aunt. Like it belongs to her, it's her. He's taking her food to her. Like he's not helping them. You got this all wrong. And he tried to calm down um, Abu, Abu Jahl. But Abu Jahl you know, wasn't hearing any of this. And he kept yelling and screaming. So Abu Al-Bukhtari getting a little irritated with Abu Jahl, he said, Why don't you get out of this way's man? Get, get out of this man's way. Get out of his way. Let him go. Let him do what he has to do. Abu Jahl wasn't going to have any of that. 
He said, no, I'm standing right here. And he kept yelling and screaming. And he said, no, I'm not going to let y'all go. And then Abu Jahl basically reaches out and tries to attack Hakim bin Hizam. Abu al-Bukhtari gets in the way. And so Abu Jahl tries to hit Abu al-Bukhtari. The problem is that Abu al-Bukhtari was, was a stronger man than Abu Jahl. And Abu al-Bukhtari not only pushes Abu Jahl back, but reaches down. And the narration actually mentions that there was a jawbone of a camel that was lying there on the ground. Because it was a little bit outside of Mecca that this whole you know, situation is going down. There was the jawbone of a camel that was on the ground that Abu al-Bukhtari picked up and he cracked Abu Jahl over the head with it. It seems to be like a common theme in the life of Abu Jahl, by the way. All right, there was, there was Hamza radiallahu anhu, and there was Umar ibn Khattab radiallahu anhu, and now apparently Abu al-Bukhtari is doing the same thing. So Abu Jahl probably by this time didn't have a lot of hair growing on his head, but he picks up this, this jawbone of a camel and cracks him over the head with it. And Abu Jahl falls down bleeding from the head, Abu al-Bukhtari gets on him and just starts to finish him off. You know, UFC style, he's just on top of him, he's just finishing him off. The narration actually mentions, He basically just started pounding and stomping on Abu Jahl, like, you little man. You're gonna try to come and attack me. I tried to talk to you, you didn't want to listen, this is the language you speak. Because now Abu al-Bukhtari is beside himself, now he's furious and angry, because he feels dishonored and insulted and disrespected. But this is where something very interesting happens. Hamza bin Abdul Muttalib radiallahu ta'ala, because this was outside of Mecca, this was not very far from the Shi'ab, the valley where they were staying. Hamza radiallahu anhu sees this. He sees what's going on. Now Hamza radiallahu anhu had put a whooping himself on Abu Jahl before. So as far as he's concerned, he's like, that dude's never gonna learn his lesson. You know, that dude just doesn't learn his lesson. But Hamza radiallahu anhu and some of the other Muslims and the believers were very intelligent. They had foresight. They had been trained by the Prophet These are the students of the Prophet We don't realize that sometimes. You know, they weren't just kind of like in this situation altogether, like um, we might as well suffer altogether. No, these were the students of the Prophet So they had learned foresight and vision. And, and they'd been trained by the Prophet Hamza radiallahu anhu sees this, so he gathers up some of the other Muslims, some of the other Muslim believing men, and he takes them and they go there and they basically push Abu al-Bukhtari back. They, you know, some of them, they kind of grab him and pull him off, rip him away from Abu Jahl. And the other Muslim men, they surround Abu Jahl and to protect him and they say, sorry, that's enough, that's it. Leave, go. You made your point, we appreciate it, but you go now. And they actually saved Abu Jahl's life. They saved Abu Jahl's life. Now there's two things for us to consider here. Number one, obviously, because you know, on one side you could argue that because you know, for the sake of public safety and peace and tranquility and valuing a human life, they saved him and they protected him. This was no doubt, most definitely a consideration on their part. But on the other hand, somebody could also argue, these are the same people who had witnessed Abu Jahl in cold blood, Murder Sumayya radiallahu ta'ala anha in broad daylight. So at the same time, yes, they had a consideration for you know, the sanctity of life, but this is somebody who had foregone the sanctity of his own life by murdering not one, but multiple individuals in broad daylight. Defenseless, innocent people, even women and children, he had murdered them. 
So the second part of the consideration that some of the classical historians they actually mention here, Ibn Ishaq writes about this, Imam Ibn Kathir rahimahullah ta'ala, he writes about this as well. That part of the reason why they did this was, وَهُمْ يَكْرَهُونَ أَنْ يَبْلُغَ ذَلِكَ رَسُولَ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم وَأَصْحَابَهُ فَيَشْمَ تُوبِهِمْ وَرَسُولَ اللَّهِ صلى الله عليه وسلم عَلَى ذَلِكَ يَدْعُوا قَوْمَهُ لَيْلًا وَنَهَارًا وَسِرًا وَجِهَارًا مُنَادِيًا بِأَمْرِ اللَّهِ تَعَالَى لَا يَبْقَى أو لَا يَتَّقِي فِيهِ أَحَدًا مِنَ النَّاسِ فَجَعَلَتْ قُرَيْشْ حِينَ مَنَعَهُ اللَّهُ مِنْهَا وقام عمه وقومه من بني هاشم وبني عبد المطلب دونه وحالوا بينهم وبين ما أرادوا من البطش به يهمزونه ويستهزئونه ويخاصمونه وجعل القرآن ينزل في قريش بأحداثهم وفي من نصب لعداوته ومنهم من سمى لنا ومنهم من نزل فيه القرآن في عامة من ذكر الله من الكفار. It goes on to talk more about some of the extenuating circumstances there, but basically what they mention here is that at the same time part of their consideration was that if this man is killed, and you know as vile as this man is, he's still viewed as a leader of the people back in back in Mecca for Quraysh. If he's murdered out here like this in cold blood, with us. In close proximity, just looking on and watching on. Even if Abu al-Bukhtari takes responsibility for it. Because the, 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 the culture in Arabia at that time was, you know, he probably would have said, yeah, I killed him. Because he disrespected me. And if, and if y'all want to disrespect me, y'all are going to end up just like him too. That was kind of the culture in Arabia at that time. So even if he takes responsibility, but as, if it happened because of us, and we were standing right here, they will find a way to, kind, to basically wrap us up in this and put some blame on us for this. And then they will come out hunting. A lot of sacrifices have been made by the Prophet ﷺ, by Abu Talib, by the families, by the believers. A lot of sacrifices have been made to try to keep the mushrikun at bay. And so that the message, more than anything else, the message of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can continue to be propagated. And if this man is murdered out here like this, they're gonna come hunting us down. They're gonna pull out all the stops. And we can't have that happen. So they had this type of foresight and vision. So number one, one was the consideration of the fact that this type of senseless violence needed to be put an end to. Secondly, there was also the consideration because of Abu Jahl's personal circumstances. Because Abu Jahl, he himself, usually the first consideration would have been enough to put an end to the violence. But because Abu Jahl is a unique case, he's basically a Fir'aun of his people. Because of that, there was also the second consideration on the part of the believers that we also have to look out for the good of the message as well, and the good of the deen, and the good of the believers, and the Prophet wasallam and our families as well. We can't let this man be killed out here like this. Because then other people will come hunting us down. And so they actually saved Abu Jahl's life that day. But of course Abu Jahl didn't really seem to care much for that. And he continued on doing whatever he did. So these were some of the situation circumstances that were going down during this boycott at this time. Now, while this is all going on, basically extend this over to... A period of three years where you can imagine how difficult the situation must have been. At towards the end of these three years, I've talked about a couple of things that have happened. Number one, 
because of the suffering of the people, because of the suffering of the people and their circumstances and their situation, the general sentiment on the ground amongst the common public, the common people, and many of these people have relationships and friendships with many of the people that are going through this situation. The, the sentiment in Mecca is not very favorable towards this, this boycott. They don't like this. They're not okay with this. They say, we, we, they, they don't like what's going on at all. But at the same time, of course, there's some apprehension because the major leaders are basically the ones that are backing this and pushing this. So there's, but nevertheless, there is a growing sentiment in Mecca that we don't like the way this is going. At the same time, Abu Talib comes to the Prophet ﷺ and says, you know, the people are suffering. Things are bad. The Prophet ﷺ, in narrations even talk about him being in, being in serious anguish, looking at the suffering of his people. And the suffering of all these innocent people. Women and children. And he's very bothered and disturbed by this. So, the Prophet of Allah ﷺ comes to Abu Talib. Abu Talib says, I want to approach these people and negotiate with them. I know that they said no negotiation, but I have to. I have to try something. I can't watch women and children die like this. I just can't do it. So the, the Prophet ﷺ makes dua. And he comes to Abu Talib and he says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has done something. And the narration mentions that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has sent down upon this agreement, and it said that this agreement that they had written was hung from the Kaaba itself. They had hung it from the Kaaba, from the top part of the Kaaba. And I've talked about in one of the earlier sessions how the Kaaba, when it was reconstructed, it was made twice its height. Like the height that we see of it today that was done actually at the time of the Prophet before Nubuwa, and we talked about that in detail. So because it was so much higher, they put up a ladder and they went and they hung it from the top of the Kaaba so nobody could reach it without somebody seeing, somebody trying to get to it. And so the narration says that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the Prophet tells Abu Talib, Allah has sent termites and insects upon that agreement, that written agreement. And those termites and those insects have specifically, and the narration says they had taken the agreement, obviously if you leave a piece of paper out like that, you know, or even some parchment or something, you leave that out like that, it's gonna, it's gonna get ruined just by weather and everything else. It's gonna weather away. So what they ended up doing was they actually wrapped it, they encased it inside of leather. They wrote it and basically binded it inside of leather and tied it up and then that, that's how they had hung it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent insects down inside the wrapped leather onto the agreement. And the Prophet ﷺ tells Abu Talib that those insects went in there and ate away wherever the name of Allah may have been, wherever the name of the Prophet ﷺ was inside of that agreement. There is no mention of God, there is no mention of Allah, there is no mention of anything good. All that's left in there is their vile words and their, their, their vile words and their vile agreement. The unfortunate things that they have written, all the zulm, all the oppression, all the wrong, all the sin that they have mentioned there, those are the only things left. The name of God has been removed from there. Miraculously, and Allah has sent these insects to do it. And at the same time, this coincided with the reports, the, the, book, the books of Sirah mentioned, that some of the men from Banu Abd Munaf and Qusay, and some of them had basically gotten together 
And they had said that we need to go tonight to Abu Jahl and some of the leaders of Quraysh and we need to go to them and we need to tell them this has to stop. So now the general public in Mecca is saying, no, this needs to stop. They, they appointed a delegation. They said, tonight we're going to go to Abu Jahl and the rest of his people and we're going to tell them this needs to stop and tonight. This is over. And at the same time, while they're basically preparing to go talk to Abu Jahl, the Prophet ﷺ is telling Abu Talib, Allah has sent down these insects to eat away at the name of Allah. When Abu Talib goes into Mecca, and the narration actually mentions that when Abu Talib walked into the Kaaba, into the Haram, when he walked in there and Abu Jahl sitting with his high council of Mecca is sitting there, and they see Abu Talib, so first of all they're like, who told this guy he could come around here? And then they saw Abu Talib was looking at them, basically intending to come talk to them. So they kind of get ready and they're kind of whispering to each other like, oh, here he comes begging for their lives. Now they're gonna, he's going to hand over Muhammad. Now you see, now he's going to hand over Muhammad. And Abu Talib comes and sits down and addresses them. And he basically says, he, he, he starts off by um, talking to them. And he, first of all, he reprimands them. He says, قَدْ حَدَثَتْ أُمُورٌ بَيْنَكُمْ لَمْ نَذْكُرْهَا لَكُمْ He said, some things, you know, that you people have done, I'm not going to talk about what, what's happened in the past. But he kind of reprimands them, and he says that what you people have done, you blame Muhammad for severing family relations. You blame Muhammad for causing problems in Mecca. You blame Muhammad for calling, causing problems in your community. But what you people have done is more heinous and worse than what anybody has ever done before. You have left your own women and children. People that are related to you, people that you were in charge of, you've left them out there to die from starvation. So don't you dare ever lecture me or Muhammad about family and about tribe and about people and community. Don't you dare talk about that. I've been out there watching women and children die. So you people have no moral footing, no moral grounds to speak on. And I'm here to deliver a straightforward message. Am I here to offer up Muhammad on a, on a, on a silver platter to you? Absolutely not. I will protect him till my last breath. But what I am here to do, what I am here to do, is to tell you, why don't you go and bring your agreement? Muhammad, who I know does not lie, he's told me that Allah, the God that He invites all of us to, has sent down insects into that agreement, who have eaten away and devoured wherever the name of God or wherever there is the mention of any good. They've eaten away and only left the bad things that you had written in that agreement. So go and bring it. Take a look at it. Now obviously, you know, Abu Talib basically put them in their place, so they really don't have much to say. But when he says bring the agreement, some of them, you know, because like I talked about, general sentiment in Mecca is, man, this needs to stop. This has gone too far. So some people are like, alright, let's go look at it. Abu Jahl says, no. We don't need to look at anything. Around that same time, the narration mentions that that delegation of the people of Mecca that was going to come and speak to them about making the stop, they arrive at the same time. And they say, yeah, let's see the agreement, let's see the agreement. And so now it starts to get kind of loud and rowdy. Everyone's like, yeah, bring the agreement, Abu Jahl. 
Ya Abul Hakam, Amr ibn Hisham, like if you're not afraid, then bring it. Come on, let's take a look at it. And Abu Talib at that point in time, seeing that Abu Jahl is still being a little bit stubborn, he basically says, okay, okay, you want to up, up the odds a little bit? You want to know how confident I am about this? He says that if the insects, if in reality what Muhammad says is true, these insects have eaten away the name of God and the mention of the Kaaba and the mention of anything sacred, if that in fact has happened, and Muhammad is speaking the truth as I know that he is, then this boycott will end right here, right now. But if what I'm saying and what Muhammad has sent me to deliver to you, the message is not true, and we bring that agreement and that's not the case, that's not what's happened, then I will go and tie up Muhammad and bring him to you and deliver him to you right here, right now. And you can execute him, you can do whatever you want with him. That's how confident I am. So he kind of Abu Talib is realizing, you know, that he had to kind of call Abu Jahl like that out in public. And kind of question his manhood a little bit. So he calls him out like this, challenges him. So of course, now Abu Jahl, if he turns down the deal, then he's a coward. He's a coward. So Abu Jahl says, alright, go and bring the agreement. Let's take a look at it. When they bring the agreement and they open it up, it's exactly as the Prophet They found that As-Sadiq al-Masduq, Muhammad Rasulullah the always truthful, and the one whose truthfulness was attested to by Allah Himself, and by humanity and the people around Him, that He had of course again spoken the truth. And it was exactly as that. فَلَمَّا رَأَتْهَا قُرَيْشْ كَالَّذِي قَالَ أَبُوْ طَالِبْ قَالُوا وَاللَّهِ إِنْ كَانَ هَذَا قَدْتٌ إِلَّا سِحْرٌ مِّنْ صَاحِبِكُمْ فَارْتَكَسُوا وَعَادُوا بِشَرِ مَا كَانُوا عَلَيْهِ مِنْ كُفْرِهِمْ So Abu Jahl and some of his cronies basically tried to say, Aha, see, this is more magic from Muhammad. This is more magic from Muhammad. We're going to stick to what we said earlier. We're going to keep doing what we have to do. But the narration says at that point in time, even some of the people who originally were on Abu Jahl's side, they said some of the people were Abu Al-Bukhtari, the same man who I talked about earlier, who had kind of given Abu Jahl a little bit of a beating. He was there too. He was a leader of Quraysh at the end of the day. You can imagine that must have been an awkward meeting. Right? So Abu Al-Bukhtari is there. Mut'am bin Adi. Mut'im bin Adi, who was always a supporter of, you know, generally speaking, was a little bit more supportive from the leadership of the Quraysh. He was there. Zuhair bin Abi Umayya bin Al-Mughira was there. Zama'a bin Al-Aswad was there. Hisham bin Amr. Abu Jahl, he himself was there. But what ended up happening at this time, these other leaders like Abu Al-Bukhtari and Mut'im bin Adi and these other leaders, basically also said to Abu Jahl like, sorry man, it is what it is. It is what it is. This has to end right here, right now. And some of the narrations mentioned that literally standing right there, what kind of sealed the deal, what convinced even some of the other leaders of Quraysh and some of the high council of Quraysh to basically give this up and to, to break the agreement and even go against 
uh, Abu, Ta- uh, Abu Jahl and what Abu Jahl was insisting on that Abu Talib recited some poetry there. And Abu Talib was a very eloquent man in his poetry. We've talked about before. The poetry he recited earlier throughout the stages of the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam. It said that he recited some poetry there to kind of get to some of the decency and the pride of these other individuals. I find Abu Jahl is Abu Jahl. You can't reason with Abu Jahl. But these other ones, Abu al-Bukhtari, Mut'im bin Adi, some of these other leaders, I can still appeal to the goodness in them. And Abu Talib recited some poetry. He said, Ala abligha anni an dhati baynina lu'ayyan wa khussa min lu'ay bani Ka'bin. He said that I'm here to basically reason with, you know, I'm here to reason about our relationship with Banu Luay. And more specifically, Banu Ka'ab. That was the, tr- the families of Quraysh. أَلَمْ تَعْلَمُوا أَنَّا وَجَدَا مُحَمَّدًا نَبِيًّا كَمُوسَى خُطَّ فِي أَوَّلِ الْكُتُبِ Don't they understand that we have found Muhammad to be truthful and to be a prophet like the prophets before him? وَأَنَّ عَلَيْهِ فِي الْعِبَادِ مُحَبَّةً وَلَا خَيْرًا مِمَّنْ خَصَّهُ اللَّهُ بِالْحُبِّ That don't they see that Allah has showered upon Muhammad وسلم, the love of his fellow man. And that there is no more good than somebody who is given the love of Muhammad. And he says, and don't they see and understand that this agreement that you have hung from the Kaaba is a huge source of shame and embarrassment for you. It's a huge source of shame and embarrassment for you. أَفِيقُوا أَفِيقُوا قَبْلَ أَنْ يُحْفَرَ الثُّرَى وَيُصْبِحُوا مَنْ لَمْ يَجْنِ ذَنْبًا كَذِي الذَّنْبِ And he said, أَفِيقُوا أَفِيقُوا Rise above this, rise above this. Find your decency. Find your decency before graves are dug. And the innocent is buried as the guilty should not even be buried. Rise above this. Rise above this and find your decency. Before graves are dug for innocent people. And innocent people are dying and buried in a way that not even the guilty should be buried. Don't follow wild animals. Talking about Abu Jahl. Don't follow wild animals and break relationships. After so much love and nearness has been established between us. And he says that you are being dragged. You are being dragged into a battle, into a war that will never end. That will have multiple, dozens of casualties. When you are a people who have tasted, you have tasted the bitter milk of war before. Death is not a pleasant thing. Bearing your loved ones is not a fun thing. You've known this. Why are you being dragged into this war again? فَلَسْنَا وَرَبِّ الْبَيْتِ نُسْلِمُ أَحْمَدًا لِعَزَّائِ مَنْ غَضِّ الزَّمَانِ وَلَا كَرْبِ He says, because we, I swear by the rub of this bait. He points at the Kaaba standing there. Imagine Abu Talib standing there speaking this loudly, screaming these words. He points at the Kaaba and he says, I swear by this, the rub of this bait, I swear by the Lord of this majestic house, that we will not hand over Ahmad. We will not hand over Muhammad. 
And I talked about earlier in the earlier sessions, not only as Allah referred to the Prophet as Ahmad in the Quran, but that was a specific name that more of his close family members called him. The mother of the Prophet used to like calling him Ahmad. And that's why Abu Talib, when he would speak to the Prophet oftentimes, even when he wouldn't call him beloved nephew or dear son, he would call him by the name of Ahmad. So he says, I swear, and by using the name Ahmad, he's letting them know that this is my boy. This is my boy that you're asking for. You think I'm gonna come here and serve up my boy to you to be murdered and killed? You must have lost your mind. I swear by the Lord of this majestic house, we will not hand over Ahmad, he's my boy, I'm not handing him over to you. No matter how difficult the time may become, and no, how, no, no matter how serious the sacrifices may be. The, the, some of the poetry is a little bit longer, he goes on to talk about it, and he uses some very eloquent stuff talking about battle and war in extreme circumstances. But then he ends by saying, "Alaysa abuna Hashimun shadda azrahu wa awsa banihi bitta'ani wa bitdarbi." He says, "Isn't Hashim one of our fathers?" And remember, I've talked about this. Hashim was one of the forefathers of the Prophet ﷺ and of the people of Banu Hashim, Banu the, the people of Quraysh. This was called Banu Hashim, who had brought a lot of dignity and honor. And we've actually talked about why he was called Hashim. That was not his name. Bilianahu Hashim al Khubza. Because he was one of the first people, before initially, when people would visit the Kaaba, Mecca, they would serve them water, zamzam. But he was the first one who said, no, we need to do more than that. And he actually would sit there, he would have his wife and the women of the home bake bread, and he would sit there and break the bread himself, and then break it up into, cut it up into small pieces, and then he would serve it to people along with the zamzam water. Very honorable, dignified man, had brought a lot of respect and dignity to Mecca, to Quraysh. That he basically said that isn't Hashim our forefather? And didn't he, you know, work very hard to teach us to be good and teach us about how, you know, serious war and some of these circumstances are? Walasna, and, and he also said, but at the same time, he taught us good moral ethics and qualities, but he also taught us how to fight. He also taught us how to fight. And remember, I am the grandson. I am the grandson of Hashim, Abu Talib is saying. So he's appealing to them saying, look, war is not a good thing. We don't want to fight because innocent people will die. And we'll have to bury our loved ones with our own hands. But at the same time, he ends by telling them, he goes, Hashim's my grandfather. He's a leader, somebody you all look up to, but he's my grandfather. He's my granddaddy, as we say in the South. Right? And he taught us how to fight. He taught us how to fight. And he says, وَلَسْنَا نَمَلُّ الْحَرْبَ حَتَّى تَمَلَّنَا And he says, we will, we're not afraid of fighting. He says, I do, we do not bore of fighting. I don't get bored fighting. Until fighting gets bored of me. Basically saying, war does not end me, I end war. I finish things. Abu, and that's very drastic for a man like Abu Talib to say. Abu Talib was known for his gentle disposition. He was known for being a very humble, modest man. But Abu Jahal kind of pushed it a little too far. So he appeals to them, to their good sense, to their decency and their family and things like that. He appealed to them, but he kind of ends by saying like, I'm not here to beg and plead for my life. Know this, I finished things. You might start it, but I'll finish it. وَلَسْنَا نَمَلُّ الْحَرْبَ حَتَّى تَمَلَّنَا وَلَا نَشْتَكِي مَا قَدْ يَنُوبُ مِنَ النَّكْبِ And he goes, and we were taught by our forefathers not to complain about difficulty. We can take difficulty three years. 
Three years, we've been listening to our children cry themselves to sleep. Three years, we've been burying our dead. Oh, we're not tired. We're not done. We can keep this going. So you best take into consideration who you're here to pick a fight with. وَلَكِنَّنَا أَهْلُ الْحَفَائِضِ وَلَكِنَّنَا أَهْلُ الْحَفَائِضِ وَالنُّهَا إِذَا طَارَ أَرْوَاحُ الْكُمْآتِ مِنَ الرُّعْبِ And he said, realize that rather we are people, even though we can fight, we can finish things, we can do, we can dance. But at the same time, know that we are people who pride themselves on protecting people. We strive to protect life. We are people who identify and pride ourselves on protecting life. And nuha and intelligence. We're an intelligent people who value human life. Because the souls of the people who go out there into the battlefield, eventually one time they leave their body. Meaning if all of us were as eager to fight as you are all the time, Abu Jahl, we'd all be dead. So I'm not afraid to fight. But I know that there is a place and a time for intelligence and for the preservation of life. Abu Talib spoke these words, screaming loudly, powerfully, standing right in front of the Kaaba. Try to just get that mental image. The majestic Kaaba there. Everybody who's, everybody who's anybody. All the important people in Makkah there. That agreement being held in someone's hand. And eaten away wherever the name of Allah or the name of the Kaaba or any sacred mention was there. Holding that miraculous, you know, that, 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 that result, the consequence of the miracle of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Abu Talib standing there proud and dignified. Screaming, pointing at the Kaaba. Reminding them of reality. By the time Abu Talib was done, everybody had heard enough. And they took that agreement and they tore it up. They snatched it from Abu Jahl's hands and they tore it up and they said, this is done, this is over, we're finished. Bring our people back home. We still don't agree with Muhammad. But bring our people back home. This needs to stop. And this was three years after the fact. Three years later, the Muslims, Muhammad Rasulullah his family members, Banu Abdul Muttalib, and even those people who hadn't accepted Islam but had st stood by the Prophet they all came back home, they arrived back home to the safety of their homes and to Mecca to not only you know, finally get some relief from the suffering in the valley, but secondly, now it was back to, in some instances, back to square one. Now let's try to figure this out. How are we going to make this work here in Mecca? And so in the next sessions, we'll basically talk about the aftermath and what was done to basically handle and deal with the circumstances when the believers and the Prophet Sallallahu excuse me, we're back in Mecca. Now, one of the last things that I wanted to kind of mention here in the session that I didn't mention earlier, um, that the classical narrations, uh, Ibn Hisham mentions this, Ibn Ishaq mentions this, Alama Ibn Kathir ta'ala mentions this, that, and this is something that's pretty popularly known, that the person who wrote the actual agreement with his hands, the katib, the one who wrote the agreement, the one that Abu Jahl sat down and was willing to sit down and put something 
as vile as this, as down on a piece of paper, was a man by the name of Mansur bin Ikrama. Mansur bin Ikrama. And he's the one who basically had written this down. Ibn Hisham mentions in another narration that it was Nadru ibn al-Harith. Um, but the, Ibn Kathir, ta'ala, after compiling a lot of narrations about who it was, he basically reconciles the narrations. He says, no, it was Mansur bin Ikrama. And as Ibn Ishaq mentions, that is a more reliable position. And he's the one who had basically written this down. And it said that when the Prophet saw the suffering, babies that were starving and dying, that the Prophet was so pained by seeing innocent people, especially children, in suffering, that the Prophet ﷺ made dua against whoever wrote something as vile as this. And it said that Mansur bin Ikrama, basically his hand became paralyzed after he had written this. His hand became paralyzed. Shallayaduhu. Some narrations say, Shallat ba'du asabi'ihi, that there was some of his fingers that became paralyzed, or his hand became paralyzed, and he was not able to use his hand or write anything else after that for the rest of his life. And that was kind of a punishment that you know, descended upon him because of his being party to something that was the cause of such severe suffering for so many people. So to kind of conclude the session here, we learn a lot of different lessons. We learn that we learn something from the foresight and the vision of Abu Talib. That kind of taking a step back, taking a step back from a very volatile situation, a situation had a lot of wisdom in. The Prophet ﷺ had employed that same strategy earlier when he sent, you know, a hundred plus believers over to Habasha. When he had done that, that was that same strategy. To kind of take a step back a little bit. Secondly, we also see that the believers, even in these extreme circumstances, were still willing to not let their emotions um, get the best of them, not to fall into a mode of vengeance and be, be in a very vengeful, you know, have a vengeful attitude. But when they even witness Abu Jahl being beaten to death, they're able to step in and save his life. More important, for more, for any, more than any other reason, they're, able, they're willing to do this and they do this. Why? To not create more problems down the road. To not have all of the sacrifice be for nothing at all. And to protect the situation from deteriorating even further, they're willing to save the life of an enemy, the one who has basically caused all of this to happen. So you see the wisdom and the foresight, the temperament, of the Prophet ﷺ and of the believers. The wisdom, the foresight, the patience that they were willing to employ in order to preserve this situation. At the same time, you also see that why wouldn't, if, if it was that miracle in and of itself, of these insects coming down and eating away at this piece of paper, why didn't Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make that happen three years ago? So many innocent people suffering could have been prevented. Why is that happening three years later? Three years is a long time. And that, see, that's kind of sometimes a problem I have even with even talking about the seerah. I just sat there and in an hour told you about the suffering of a people that lasted for three years. It seems like injustice. It seems like injustice. Can you imagine three years of suffering? Why did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wait for three years before making this miracle occur and happen. Because you have to take the circumstances into consideration. 
These people had listened to the Qur'an, had witnessed miraculous events before. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala sent this miracle to be the straw to break the camel's back. But what happened before this was generally speaking the conscious, the conscious of the people of Makkah had already awoken. The, the, it had reached a point where the general public in Makkah was not okay with it anymore. When that was the circumstance and then the case, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala causes something miraculous like this to happen, because that's the right time, that's the perfect moment. So it also states the fact that sometimes for people who are striving to believe in Allah, who are willing to sacrifice to believe in Allah, who are willing to sacrifice for the better, for, for, for preserving and sharing and spreading this guidance to all of mankind. They might have to sacrifice, they might have to suffer. And we learn a lesson from the early believers. We might have to sacrifice and we have to be willing to sacrifice. We don't ask for it. نَسَلُكَ الْعَافِيَةِ That, oh Allah, we ask you for protection. The Prophet ask Allah for protection, for safety. So we ask Allah for protection. But if sacrifice is required in order for us to preserve and pr uh, propagate the message of Allah, we're willing to make that sacrifice. But at the same time, we're going to have to have patience in those circumstances. They had patience until the general conscience of the people was also awoken and the people also realized that this cannot go on any further. You require a certain amount of support from the people, backing from the people. That has to be there. And that's exactly what was achieved. So Allah and His Messenger required patience from the believers and the followers at that time. They had to be patient for three years until finally the general sentiment in Mecca was no more. We don't like this. No way, this has to stop now. And then exactly coinciding with that, this miracle comes from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, making all of this end. Making all of this end. So these are some considerations. And then, finally at the end of the day, a believer still requires, you know, as a human being, no matter how strong of a believer someone is, as human beings we still require some type of, you know, some source of just validation. That somebody cannot do something like this to us and get away with it. Somebody cannot do something like this to us and get away scot-free. Scot that, just, that just can't happen. As human beings, there's that need. I have to know somebody who does something like this suffers for it. Everybody pays their price. Even though we should be able to forgive and forget, but at some human level, there's that need. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, look what He did. Abu Jahal, humiliated, disgraced by his own people, turned on by his own people, beaten in the street, like a vagrant. Like a vagrant, he's beaten in the middle of the street, turned on by his own, by his own followers, and his own supporters, and his own people, and his own peers. And eventually we know the fate that he dies with, and we'll talk about that in the Battle of Badr, in the Medina and Sira. When a man like Abu Lahab, turns on the Prophet ﷺ, turns on his own family, and is so willing to do so much harm to people who believe in Allah, look how he dies. We talked about that again today. When the man who even sits down and very willingly like, hey Abu Jahl, you need me to write down for you? I got you man, I got this right here. Go ahead. When somebody's willing to be a party to something vile like this, unjust, unjust like this, oppress, oppressive in nature, 
Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala paralyzed his writing hand. And this man was never able to write again for the rest of his life. So everyone could know, this is a man who wrote that. This is a man who wrote that and he will never write another thing for the rest of his days. Allah does take care of those people who need to be taken care of. But we have to let Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make that decision. We have to let Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala do that whenever the time is right. We don't have to worry about being judge and jury and executioner. That's not our job. Leave Allah's job to Allah. Allah is al-adl. Allah will, let, will make justice prevail. We have to focus on ourselves. And our primary focus should be the responsibility we have. And the responsibility we have is La ilaha illallah Muhammad Rasulullah. This iman, this faith, this kalima, this tawheed, this risala, this Quran, this akhirah, this is our trust, this is our responsibility. To make sure that the name of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala you know, um, spreads amongst the people. And belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is maintained in the hearts of people. That is our responsibility. That's where our focus needs to be. That was the focus of Muhammad Rasulullah and the early believers. And this, this very, very you know, moving, serious uh, event from the life of the Prophet ﷺ, from the Makkansira, the three years of boycott and the shu'ab of Abi Talib is a great example of that. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us all the reality of the seerah, the life of the Prophet ﷺ. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala give us the ability to benefit from this, learn this, and live our lives according to the valuable lessons that are found in the life of the Prophet ﷺ. Subhanallahi wa bihamdihi, subhanakallahu wa bihamdik, nashadu wa la ilaha illa anta, nasaghfiruka wa natubu ilayk.